Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Cassidy Cook, and this podcast is going to showcase my book, Liquid Lineage. You are listening to Chapter 2, Episode 2. Meredith never felt like much of a mother. That's not to say she wasn't seen as much of one from the outside. Quite the opposite, in fact. What a wonderful unit the Luker family is, people would whisper throughout the town of Yellow Hills, echoing affirmations of validity. This could help solidify their supposed success. Words being as powerful as they are, act as curses if kept in pristine condition long enough and repeated with enough consistency. All the people of all the town seemed to agree on less than a few things, but one of the few was that the family at the top of the hill is the ideal, the epitome of what you want to be and if you don't, first, why, and second, you should. It isn't difficult to see the stark differences between black and white on a checkered floor, just as simple a task it is to compare the differences between the people on the Golden Mountain and those below it. The Lucre lineage is an ancient and pure one, especially in comparison to the mutts they pretend to care for a dozen times a year. They seem to flow like thick liquid out of their fortress to attend their monthly outings. As the years pass, the Lukers are becoming more sheltered, and the townsfolk are left to wonder why they are seeing less and less of their shiny peers. The poor laymen are stuck in ignorance, living in a world of scattered rumors and stolen truths. How would one even begin to uncover the story of not only the family that inhabits the land, but the land itself? Well, a good theory would be to study where the shifts take place. Where do you notice slight alterations in their schedules and habits? Study their relationships and how they interact with one another transforms over time. Study the ways in which they transform. If you set out with a little veracity, you might find that four years ago the Lukers made a public announcement at the peak of the August heat. A 39-year-old Meredith, five months later, would give birth to a beautiful baby girl they would call Mercy. Chilling, right? I suppose not. However, when comparing the socialite Lukers pre-Mercy and the isolated Lukers you see following the young one's arrival, it becomes starkly clear where the shift took place. Around this same time, the older son Crane was put in therapy. Mercy was around one at the time this was happening, and Crane would have had to be currently less than five years old. Imagine the headlines. Golden family, middle child, enters therapy following the birth of youngest sister. Is it neglect or entitlement of the troubled son? No one but the family knew the true reason why, and even then, only a few knew within the bloodline. Luker lost sheep, needs new therapist, read the current headlines as Crane is enrolled to this day and doesn't seem to show out to the public like the other members. Fast forward to present... Crane is nine and Mercy is five. However, for the past four years, the family as a whole has become drastically mute, more extrusive, used in the 1816 definition meaning above, above everyone, above everything, above the earth itself, ungrounded, Everest level, breathlessness above. The kind of air these people consume must be kept in vats below the surface, people would gossip. 
They seem to age, but only in the ways that benefit them, only in the ways they allow. They probably live on air, another would chime, pouring it straight into their vessels via vials on their bedstand. These were only two of the wandering whispers floating in the winds of yellow hills, touching ear to ear of peasants, leaving their lips and wreaking havoc on logic. For the recent half-decade, change was in the air and the Lukers must have been downing it daily. Their once ally became their opposition as the public goes without answers as to why they only see the magical family now every so often. Their fans and their confidants, the writers who surround their craft with the tales of the ones on the hill, the coffee shop hoppers who spill mysteries on the table as they scavenge for theories with friends, all gone quiet, still and stale, until today. April 4th, today was that day. For the month of April, the Lukers would be attending a science fair for their oldest child. Of the three Luker children, Rowan is the brainiest. At 11, he is honored and awarded a B.A. in physics. Current day, 14, Rowan is receiving multiple acknowledgments for his studies done on superconductivity. A disciplined child prodigy at the age of 13. A proud father opens the door for his genius offspring. A red carpet laid neatly and pulled tightly from all corners all the way up to the massive white arches entering the town center. Tunneling down the long hallway, on either side are white pillars and small child-sized posters of upcoming events, some of which would include concerts, artists, and exhibits. The Lukers are honored here for more than their prodigy. They are loved for their prodigal as well. Prodigal meaning waste of wealth. The sheer abundance in this building is proof it was built from the deep pockets of Lachlan Luker. If he were to smell a hint of displeasure on anyone attending tonight, it wouldn't be a difficult task to have them removed completely. Hello, Mr. Luker, sir, I... Lachlan grabs the suavely dressed man's outstretched hand as he continues with his praise. I would like to formally thank you for your annual contribution to the center. It was extremely kind this year, and I can't tell you just how truly grateful we are for your generosity. The patriarch soaks it up like a sponge, drinking in the admiration of his power and affluence. The surge of ego settles in his belly after a few intensely erotic seconds. He first sighs and says, mm, Yes, the center has always been a distant love of mine. It's a great pleasure to see it thriving. He finishes with his chest, puffing it up like a mating dance. Actually, sir, we have been slightly struggling recently. The money hasn't been there to pay the workers, so a lot of them stopped coming to work, even some that have been with us for decades. It's understandable, though, I do get that we all need a steady paycheck, but that was all up until your gift, Mr. Luker. You saved us just in the nick of time for this, our much-anticipated event. The man swings his arm up and out, pivoting on his left foot and standing shoulder to shoulder with Lachlan to show himself, Meredith, and Rowan the noisy crowd communing to the side of them. It seemed to suggest a large turnout. Lachlan didn't like this. He sees straight through the sly, small, slinky man. Lachlan knows he has been slacking with his charitable offerings. He knows very well that the past four years have been touch-and-go, especially the most recent one. 
There are many things dwindling in the Lucre lineage, riches being one of them. The man swings back around to face Lachlan, pivoting on his left foot, lowering his arm and raising a smirk, holding a sparkle of mischievous achievement in his eyes. Lachlan steadily reaches out and firmly grabs the right shoulder of the sharp-looking, small-in-stature, mousy little thing, nearly destabilizing him to one foot. "'Better times are upon us, my good friend,' he says as he squeezes twice against the man's sports coat and making sure to squeeze a little harder on the second one. This subtle act of violence could have given Lachlan a hard-on, but before much could rise besides the tension, the three Lucre descendants slither past the suddenly shriveled human to the right of them, entering into the aforementioned quote-unquote large turnout. Applause erupts as Rowan is seen by a group of college kids sitting in the courtyard in the distance. A Rowan the boat, work the middle, sign was seen being held by one of the young girls there. That's extremely inappropriate. Does that woman know how old I am? Pleads Rowan with embarrassment in front of his parents, clearly blushing and thoroughly flattered. As they make their way deeper into the crowd, before he is set to step on stage, he is greeted by more people than he is used to. Since he was 13 nearly a year ago, the news broke with the first headlines containing the word prodigy. That word seems to have changed it all. As Rowan is loving the stimulation, Crane is back at home despising it. Allegedly babysitting, he sweeps the house for his missing little sister as always. Truly, Crane is deep in his mind once again. As his feet slide across the cold hard floor, he is moving comically slow, yet his heart is beating anxiously rapid. He roams the semi-truck-wide quiet hallways, which are carved up with deep, smooth swirls that he tucks his index finger into and traces it as he waltzes on by. Receptacle. Receptacle. The word reverberates loud in his mind like a gong being physically taken advantage of. Noun. An object or space used to contain something. Lachlan is an intellectually capable man. Crane thinks to himself, doing his best to explain away the ways of his father. He is a momentary visionary and inconsistent creative, one that shoves a bomb in your psyche, anxiously waiting for an abstract aspect to rear its rare head once more, just so he can throw it in your face that your strengths are merely creative in nature, in other words, unnecessary and pestilent. He is an apparition of sorts that peeps out when beneficial to his unknown goal, Love had become a means of manipulation, and unbeknownst generosity is benown to Crane, only thanks to experience and maturation. A certain level of experience gained solely in relation to the amount of time spent listening to the ramblings of this man he calls father. Maybe it's hereditary, because incessant ponderings plague Crane as he continues in his search for Mercy the Explorer. Unlike Dora, a fictional character created in the year 2000, Mercy needn't a frisky audience to accompany her on her escapades. She was more than fine sniffing out a mystery without a red boot-wearing monkey, and although a sneaky fox is never too far away, Mercy's innocence simply won't allow fear of the elements or their tactics. Everything is beautiful to her, and that is a problem to anyone that wants to see her alive. Even the burgundy liquid saturating her bare toes is remarkably miraculous to her, the world, to her, provides innocence. It is not a thief of it. The trees provide shade from the sun. The sun provides heat from the cool winds. The brown soil that magically mushes up a pale purple when interrupted by rainfall. 
The red veins in the bark proved she was among intelligence. Intelligent beings are resourceful. Mercy knew this and had inherited the nugget from her father. Receptacle. Receptacle. Why did he use that word? He didn't know how he got here. He was standing at the door, which is usually off-limits. Before he knows what's happening, the door screams at Crane as it opens, beckoning him, warning him not to enter his father's study in a deep, popping voice. He shuffles in, consciously ignoring the vibrating in his upper lip. He's had this personal alarm system built into his face ever since he was a small child. Anytime he would skip school, lie about his whereabouts, or snitch on his brother for doing something he did himself, like clockwork, his upper lip would tingle, his blood would grow hummingbird wings and flutter to its long-time nest underneath his nose. He takes one step inside the blackberry-painted room filled with rocks and slips back out, bending his leg inversely, removing himself from the area with sly constitution. He unthinkingly holds his breath as he crunches downwards to untie his heavy hiking boots. The volume of blood trickling up his neck intensifies the vibration, swelling it outwards and upwards to consume his scalp. Releasing the last knot from constriction, Crane hears footsteps approaching. He calls upon a moratorium to listen, although knowing no matter how big his ears are, which are medically speaking above average in size, he will never be able to hear his mother's muffled footsteps. She seems to levitate like a hauntingly beautiful moth, drawn to the little light that belongs to this house. Her selfish curiosity pushes her to claim it all for herself, giving no one the pleasure of knowing where she finds her peace. Her long robes serve as a firearm silencer, in which you won't know she's near until you feel that peculiar mixture of numbness and pain shooting straight through your vertebrae. Crane is frozen in a tightly controlled frenzy and hears nothing, but that is no consolatory sensation given what he knows he needs to accomplish before his family gets home. I want to thank you all so, so much for listening to Chapter 2. I also want to apologize if you heard thunder in the background. I thought it may have added to the mood but it may have been more of a nuisance than anything, so if you did hear that, I apologize. I truly hope you all enjoyed it, and if you did, I will see you next week with Chapter 3, Episode 3. But for now, stay solid. See ya!